Well, welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. My name's Tim, and I'm joined today by Harsh Bashad, who's the Head of Energy Services at Teva. Welcome, Harsh. Thanks, Tim, for inviting me. Very welcome. So can you, for the people who don't know Teva or haven't come across them before, could you give a very brief uh, dis- description uh, of what it is that Teva does? Sure thing. So Teva is a 10-year-old UK manufacturer of zero-emission trucks, and we've developed battery trucks and they're now on we're now on our third generation battery truck uh, we've got a factory just outside london and uh it's a really exciting part of the market to be in good stuff thank you so if you're into the battery electric vehicles the obvious question is um where where is your interest uh in in hydrogen um to a degree it seems to be mutually exclusive if we listen to mr musk yes i think a lot of people have um kind of stuck with the with the dogma that we're going to have single energy solutions that we had in the past but that doesn't need to really be the case we we're very supportive of battery electric technology our first battery trucks are on the road now they do the job they help um, reduce emissions now some of our customers have already saved um, just you know, tons of co2 in just a few weeks so it's really mm. good um, performance that we're getting. Uh, but at the moment, because of the technologies we have available for battery trucks, mainly lithium batteries, um, they're quite heavy and they're quite, um, uh, the, the energy density uh, can, can be quite limited. And therefore, our battery trucks, for example, they can comfortably do 100, 150 miles on the road. But really, that's only about a quarter to a third of the market that's reliably supported at that operation. If we want to try and get the full truck market, then we need to add in more energy. And if we were to try to add more battery, then basically we'd have a truck that was mostly supporting, mostly moving batteries around. And actually, that's not what any of our customers need. Um, By bringing in hydrogen as well, uh, hydrogen is very light fuel. Uh, we can store a lot more energy on the truck, and that allows us to go, say, 300, 400 miles. Um, so are you considering fuel cell electric vehicles, or are you still looking at the, the battery electric vehicle segment? So um, we have decided um, to go down a route which hybridizes both battery and hydrogen fuel cell technology. So some people have gone down a pure fuel cell, a hydrogen fuel cell route, um, where the fuel cell is load following. So um, uh, they ramp up and down as you go up and down hills, for example. Um, our approach is to have an electric motor that's battery driven and that the fuel cell's role is to top up the battery and keep that efficiently um, popped up. The advantage for us of this hybrid system or dual energy system, as we like to call it, is that you can get really efficient use of hydrogen fuel cells. You can get some 55, 60% efficiency even, uh, mm. which is which means that you're always using um, energy as that the, you're always using as much electricity as you can and you only draw on the hydrogen when you really need it. So when we talk about hybridization of um, Bevan FCEV, 
where would the ultimate range be extended to then? I think you were talking about 150 miles uh, on a bev for a seven and a half ton truck. Um, where could you get to uh, with the so fuel cell we, extender? So our first hydrogen fuel cell trucks have been seven and a half ton uh, vehicles. And we had one recently go up from London to Scotland and back. And yeah. in that trip in the middle of winter, um, we were able to get 350 miles on that truck on a single recharge refuel. There's an awful lot. It always seems that people are sort of one side or the other. It, it's it's battery electric uh, or fuel cells, and it, it seems to be uh, you know two camps. Just when you're plugging in the um, uh, in use economics, does does one stand out as 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 a clear winner, or is it more related to the infrastructure, the recharging times, and the range? Is is it more complex than just uh, which is cheapest? Well, certainly, if there if there was a clear winner, we would have alighted on it now. But I think um, the weight issue is coming down very slowly for batteries. And I think that we need to be mindful that that is um, a, you know, a good driver for hydrogen. Um, and the ability to charge batteries faster and faster is, is, is certainly improving. And it won't be too many years before we start to see megawatt charging points at motorways that allow you to do fast charges in a way that people have got accustomed to doing fast petrol or diesel refills. Um, but the way I try to look at the market, you know, as, as I, the battery trucks that in, in the range that we're looking at, which are medium duty vehicles, they're, they're the sort of vehicles you'd often see in city centres. Mm. Um, those ones, um, you know, a third of those could probably quite comfortably be dealt with with electric vehicles only, um, but probably two thirds of that market at the moment can't be satisfied with battery technology. And so you need either hydrogen or a hydrogen and battery electric system. One of the things that we have seen uh, around the continent, especially, is um, public sector support uh, for ongoing OPEX related expenditures. And so examples of recent ones we've seen are, um, uh, let's see, um, support for um, steel makers taking green hydrogen over blue hydrogen, for example. Um, we've seen support for production of um, green hydrogen over um, unabated steam methane um, hydrogen production. Uh, and those are all related to the OPEX side. Do you see, or are you aware, aware of, willingness within the UK government to provide um, subsidy support for ongoing OPEX differentials between unabated business as usual um, by my only diesel versus next best options. Yeah, so there is a scheme already in place, which is called the Renewable Transport Fuel Obligation. Mm. And that has um, essentially got a price that's not a fixed price. It's a quantity based mechanism, but it allows um, of the order of seven pounds uh, per kilogram subsidy for hydrogen from renewable sources to go into yeah. that. Um, so we're at today, it, we would need more than that renewable transport fuel obligation, at least in the UK, um, in order to get the hydrogen fuel at a cost parity uh, that allows you to get to a cost parity with diesel. So the RTFO goes some way towards things, but it isn't sufficient at the moment. And obviously the electrolyzer is getting cheaper over time. 
fingers crossed they will and, and they will do as, as scaling comes in but in the in the, in the short term they've actually gone up haven't they uh, around 30 percent uh from about two years ago because of cost push and supply chain issues and all those kinds of things so that's that's been going the wrong way but i take it you'd like to see more support than the rtfo offers at present well i think that um we do need additional support now whether that is by increasing the rtfo or maybe something that's a bit more targeted i think is uh is up for debate you're right that supply chain bottlenecks haven't helped and that's obviously got even worse with um the covid pandemic and with the russian invasion of ukraine um these have really thrown markets around um spectacularly and what we look to understand now as people are rushing into uh, growing the hydro markets is, you know, where is the hydrogen going to be made? Is it going to be made um, it, with uh, demand in mind? So the location of that hydrogen production or hydrogen distribution infrastructure allows trucks to access that. And I think that's probably as big an issue as um, as public support for the hydrogen in the first place, whether that's on the hydrogen production side or for, or for use. What about um, in terms of um, what's the role of mandates? You're a UK uh, focused company, um, or UK domiciled one. Uh, is, there, is there a role for mandates and how is the structure of the industry changing over the next what, what, 10, 20 years? Um, obviously, I'm talking about things like um, uh, an enter uh, internal combustion engine production and things like that, which we're seeing lots of lots of headlines about. How is the structure of um, the industry changing, and, and what what role do mandates have? So, I think a good example of mandates um, is when you can grow them over time. Let's say, uh, and I live in, I happen to live in in London, so I'm, I'm very fam- familiar with this particular example. London has a clean air zone, and originally, the approach was we tax higher polluting vehicles more than other vehicles. And then at some point that switches to, we don't allow the high polluting vehicles in, you have to use the low, you have to use lower polluting vehicles. Um, and then over time, you can expand the ge- geography of that zone. Um, and it's uh, it, it makes it manageable for industry to adjust because you're not having to do it everywhere all at once. Um, but you get a space to trial a new technology and to build the infrastructure. Uh, and then once you've proven that, um, once you've allowed that space for, for novel technologies and early adopters, then you can scale up. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm quite um, supportive of that. California's got a version of that, which mm. is that they mandate percentages of vehicles for fleets, um, uh, low carbon. I think the EU is going down similar sort of route and maybe the UK will as well but um, I think that that growing that mandate for new vehicles um, or for vehicles going into a particular zone I think that's very helpful yeah I think the better mandate though is really to try and um, remove um, the benefits that lots of fossil polluting um, industry or vehicles enjoy and making sure that we match the carbon prices or um, the the caps on emissions in line with what you need to be in a one and a half degree or two degree environment. At the moment, for example, transport isn't covered by emissions trading schemes, at least in the UK. 
Yeah, and that 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 uh, that target level is very much at threat. Um, I was looking at some uh, some headlines on it the other day, and uh, there was widespread skepticism about people hitting that one and a half degree um, level. Uh, and it's quite quite alarming some of the figures that are being bandied around. Uh, people are saying that, for example, um, one and a half degrees um, is manageable, and that only seventy five percent of global coral reefs would disappear. <laughs> so when you're talking yeah. about breaching that, no, I think um, that that's, it's significant. Yeah, that's how I got into all this, to be honest, from the beginning. Back in 2005, I read one of these um, IPCC reports and I was very much alarmed. And they said things like, um, by the time we get to 2020, lots of the world would be experiencing heat waves and floods and uh, coral reefs would be um, in some areas would be facing extinction and seas would be warmer and we'd have all different pollination cycles because there'd be big mismatches between plants and insects um, and you know and this played out like clockwork actually exactly by the time we got to 2020 it, all of this stuff was quite apparent in the ecosystem and um, and we haven't really made much of a dent in the CO2 rise at all no. worldwide. So getting away from the doomsday stuff at the moment <laughs> and uh, ho hoping that there's going to be an acceleration in all these things. And, and there's every reason for um, people to lean more into the energy transition. What types of companies are looking at being a customer uh, for, for solutions that you're looking to offer? We've been really lucky that um, going, when we went to market and approached most of the large um, and medium fleet operators in the UK, they're all up for a conversation about transitioning to zero, zero emission trucks. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are doing that because they've got end customers who are who buy into their products uh, because they are a sustainable company. Um, if you take, for example, um, IKEA's customers, they want to see a zero footprint across their entire purchase. So that then drives IKEA to choose fleet operators that have minimum footprint. And we've seen that kind of pressure coming onto our customers from their customers. So that's um, really encouraging. Some of them have specific net zero targets themselves mm. that they have to meet, um, or at least electric vehicle um, targets that they, they want to get to. Uh, and so that's been an interest. I, I'd say where we're at now is that lots of fleets want to trial these vehicles, but not yet um, are they ready to place very large orders. They need to see that these vehicles work in operation, um, work in anger, work when there's um, extreme weather, work when um, there's uh, you know, we, with, without needing to make big driver adjustments or, um, you know, I think that that's, we, we can't underestimate the level of evidence they need in order to put uh, a sizable orders into the market. But as mm. they've done for buses, you know, they will switch to electric and hydrogen buses once they've got that evidence and we'll see, uh, uh, well, those operators switch to hydrogen and electric buses, we'll see the same, I'm sure, for truck operators that they'll switch once they've got comfort in 
using the vehicles with their own customers. It's interesting as well that you note that um, that interest, that B2C uh, segment interest um, being slightly higher than B2B in some ways. And that's something we've seen replicated across uh, all different types of uh, commodity sectors. If there's that exposure to the end customer, there's a greater willingness to lean in um, a bit sooner. But obviously, the the evidence base required, as you say, is 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 no less uh, than for the B two B guys. Yeah, and I wonder at the moment whether the green premium that people might be willing to pay is is still there because there has been um, uh, a lot of misinformation as to how green some approaches are. It, you know, a lot of um, CNG or LNG trucks kind of have, um, you know, on the back of those, you can often see it, we're a cleaner truck. Mm. And uh, and I think, therefore, trying to understand what's the, pre- how much consumer or how much end user premium there is for a hydrogen or battery truck, given that they've already been saying to their customers that we're already green. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I wonder how much that is, and especially as a time of very high inflation and people tr- looking for every opportunity to reduce costs. So I think we can't rely on that alone. And that's why I made the case earlier in this conversation that public support would help as well. Undoubtedly. Uh, just to defray initial costs, especially, I mean, I think one of the issues that we've seen is that that we, we there's been decades of uh, greenwashing. Um, but despite that, I think the customer is now looking more towards abatement in supply chains rather than accounting for um emissions that are made so yeah. that's that is a positive but <laughs> any public support for that um to take it away from the individual is is helpful we will all pay in the end of, of course but uh that's very important for those for those early um early years well, one thing i wanted to ask you was whether i've seen um where you have pioneering markets um in the past what tends to happen is that you get pulled into um a wider role than you might have initially envisaged. So when we see penetration in things like, let's say, um, forklift trucks, for example, um, initially the idea was to supply forklift trucks, but then obviously uh, hydrogen supply and things like that became important to these companies too. Is that a pull that you're feeling in Teva as well? Or are your your customers uh, just looking for the hardware itself? Absolutely, Tim. I think you've you've identified another challenge that we have in um, selling zero emission trucks is that you need to provide a lot of supporting services to go along with that truck. So if I take just energy services, uh, which is an area that I cover at Teva, we know that customers have difficulty organising and even understanding some of the hydrogen offers on the market. Um, There are different types of hydrogen, they have different costs, there are different ways of having that hydrogen available, depot-based refueling, public stations, um, and right down to the level of how much hydrogen do you need for a particular use. I think a lot of hand-holding is appreciated at this stage, and that's not just with the fleet operator, but also with the hydrogen supplier who has not had to work with truck fleet operators either before. So we find ourselves playing um, increasingly a central role in coordinating the supply of gas and infrastructure as yep. well as 
and to align as best possible with the trucks. That also goes beyond the fuel to thinking about things like service and maintenance. At the moment, there isn't a big network of repair stations where trucks can go to, which are already set up to manage hydrogen trucks. Yeah. Very small modifications are needed, but they need to be made. And I think that um, that is also an area that we're going to have to increasingly look at. I think that's one of the things that we're seeing, especially in the mobility market. So one of the things that we've seen, and I hesitate to use the term, but we're seeing sort of hydrogen valleys or corridors developing or looking to be developed. So the Australians are looking at doing that for heavy good vehicles along their east coast. You've got, uh, I think it's Hyundai with the Exeunt, um, delivering vehicles into Switzerland. Um, a similar similar thing you'd expect to see um, within the UK, I take it, as well, with support from sort of hub-and-spoke operations. Yeah, I think hubs are a great idea. The UK's most successful hub to date has been in Aberdeen. Mm. And I was lucky enough to support that project um, in my previous role when I was working at Innovate UK. And uh, it's really been important there to be able to service that started as a bus station, really, um, to be able to service the buses so that they were able to be um, available for as long as possible. And I think that if we coordinate activities around clusters where we make us make the hydrogen locally, store it and use it locally, but also then have enough critical mass that keep allows technicians to be able to um, support those operations, uh, then that can work. I think where it struggles is where you have very diffuse activity with um perhaps a, a fairly isolated vehicle and refueling station if they go if it does run into any issues it can take a long time for that to be addressed and if it and that can undermine further confidence in the growth of that yeah so key learnings from granite city so I suppose one of the things is that because it's coming slightly later than other areas, we're now starting to see deployment into uh, refineries and uh, in fertilizer producers, etc. Is there anything that zero emission trucks can learn from other sectors that have been before them to speed up adoption? Yeah, so if we, I think that's a good question. I think if we look at the areas where we've seen the steepest cost reductions, for example, solar and wind have come down uh, enormously over the last um 20 years it was because they had good support for early adopters and in germany and the, the uk that's been through things like feed-in tariffs and renewable obligations and that really allowed people to play a to, to receive the the, the um, early customers and early installers to receive a premium uh compared to uh the value of the electricity that they were getting out of it and i think that that is missing from the transport sector uh, entirely, yeah. that there's not really much support for early adopters out there. And we need to try and come up with an analogous scheme, probably not necessarily um, that that rewards just people buying vehicles. I think the really good thing that we learned from the solar and wind industry is that you have to reward performance, not just installation. Otherwise you get installation in the wrong places or the wrong technology. So by rewarding yep. performance in the transport sector, it would be, for example, how many miles have you driven or and how many tons have you transported? 
but some kind of combination that relates to the performance of the vehicles in use rather than just having lots of vehicles sitting around carrying um you know potentially the heaviest technology because they can and they get the biggest subsidy for it but not yep. necessarily being able to use those as much yeah absolutely and it's not all been rosy um in terms of hydrogen rollout within europe of course i mean we've seen lots of people getting in quite early uh to the mobility sector and then you've seen divestments and people walking away from it uh, to a degree because the demand just hasn't been there and the costs have been high um and the take-up is slower than people had uh, envisaged and that that's in stark contrast to other areas such as korea uh, which is providing that sort of joined up um support for that uh, japan as well um so it, it's a different um experience that's been had in, in europe so far so i suppose one thing i'd ask is given that the take-up has been slower um, than some people would have wanted or expected. Do you see a date when vehicles in cities, especially the heavier vehicles, are likely to be zero emissions? Is that going to be 2050? Or do you have optimism for something um, shorter dated? I think we can bring that forward a, a long way. I think that cities are a good place to get zero emissions off the ground just because you get those added benefits related to air quality. Mm. And often the governance of cities, for example, using mayors um, or ways of different local authorities um, acting in unison, allows you to, to get the right economies of scale that align infrastructure with vehicles. Uh, so I think that's why cities are a good, good place to ask the question. Um, I think we are already starting to see, as I mentioned Aberdeen earlier, uh, many cities having tens of hydrogen vehicles already on the ground. You asked when we start to see fully zero emission. I don't think that we need to wait much more than another decade um, before some of the cities can switch to zero emissions entirely. Um, uh, but they need to bring their stakeholders, if you like, along with them. They need to bring the drivers along. They need to bring the companies that deliver day in, day out on. They mm. need to give them clear signals that by a given end date, certain vehicles are no longer going to be allowed in and they need to have uh, mechanisms available to make that transition fair and equitable. Some some places have resorted to scrappage schemes. Um, some have got payments for pollution. Some have got subsidies for new vehicles. I think we need a kind of combination of um, carrots and sticks to allow for um, that zero emission outcome to emerge. That's a, that's a key thing, the uh, the power of cities uh, in decarbonisation. We had a, a chat with Octopus a while ago about decarbonisation in city centre construction um, and, you know, the ability to uh, substitute, say, diesel generators for fuel cell generators and uh, the resulting increase in air quality, reduction in particulate matter, all those kinds of things as well. So it's uh, it seems to me to be a, a key theme. Well, look, Harsh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels will be back. <laughs> <laughs>